Hey, thanks, uh, thanks again for having me back uh, here at NBC. Uh, thanks again to the all the sound guys and the tech people. And as I come running in at 10:35 or whatever it was, so apologize for that to you guys. I'm I'm up at uh, as was mentioned earlier. I'm up at Valley Church working with uh, the high school ministry up there, and and so it's always a little bit of a challenge in uh, in talking with the high school students and then packing up and. And trying to get on the freeway in enough time to get down here, it's actually it seems like it's longer. Every time I try to drive it, it's like, why does it take so long to come down here? Why? So um, I never quite give myself enough time to get out of there to get down here. So thanks for all your flexibility. I'm running into these guys handing them PowerPoint stuff and stuff at the very last minute. So thanks for being flexible. Um, it's good to be with you guys, everybody here again uh, this morning. And um, I'm, I'm happy to be able to share some thoughts on another one of these amazing stories in uh, in John, in the Gospel of John. And the title of, uh, of our message this morning is Mercy Unlimited. And the passage that we're going to look at is John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to uh, open up there, that'd be great. John chapter 8. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we'll, we'll start at, uh, at verse 1 in, in just a moment. You know, we're in this uh, in this series, as I was talking with Dave and... Just getting an idea of, uh, of of where things have been and where you where you've been as a church and working through this. Um, I, had, I was fortunate enough to be down here. I think right after this series got started, uh, was able to, to share some thoughts with you. I think from John chapter two, uh, as we as as NBC as you started this uh, this particular series, and it's I think the title of uh, or the tagline that's on your bulletin is a great one. This idea of decent exposure, God revealed, and just a great. Picture and a great understanding here as we look at the scriptures of how Jesus is making God known. You know, as we, if we want to know what God is like, what better person to look at than his own son? And to watch the beauty of how he, he operates with people, the mercy that he shows, the forgiveness, the grace, the kindness that he, uh, he reveals to, to people all over the place. Uh, the main point that I want us to look at this morning and that I hope to drive home for us is that Jesus grants us unlimited mercy, and he asks us to do the same. Very simple. Jesus grants us unlimited mercy, and he asks us to do the same. Because of the mercy he has given us, he asks us to grant and to give that mercy to people around us. That our life should be characterized as life as a lifestyle uh, built up in actions of mercy uh, towards other people. We, we see this concept of mercy all over the place in the scriptures. Um, just uh, this morning, I was talking with uh, with our high school students. We're, we're working through some stuff in James, and some of you have probably spent some time in the uh, in the letter in James's letter in the New Testament. And uh, just a great practical uh, guide to life. I mean, it was one of those one of those uh, those books of the Bible that when I was a high school student, I just scoured over this. It was just it seemed so practical. Uh, to my, my life at that time and, and continues to be, uh, obviously till this, to this day. And there's a place here in James chapter two, just to, if you don't necessarily have to turn there if you don't want to, but James chapter two, verse 12 says here, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Basically judged by the law of grace that has been given by Jesus. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's this concept in the scriptures that mercy is a foundational element to what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to not only be a recipient of that recipient of that mercy, but to share that mercy with other people. 
Um, Matthew chapter 18 is another great passage. And I, and I just wanted to read this to you as we start this morning. You, if you'd like to flip there, you can. Uh, and we'll come back to the John 8 passage in a moment. But Matthew chapter 18, um, at, uh, starting at verse, um, verse 21, it says here that Peter uh, came to Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, uh, began the settlement, a man who owed him um, 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Pretty drastic uh, situation here. The servant fell on his knees before him and he said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceling the debt and letting him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went out and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Just an amazing passage. It's a hard passage. A lot of, I mean, we're not going to go into that necessarily this morning, but it's an interesting passage of the elevation of mercy. The call on the life of someone who has been a recipient of divine mercy, our mandate, those of us in the room here that have received forgiveness and grace and redemption and freedom in Jesus, have a mandate on our lives. It is not optional for us to grant mercy to those around us. We have received mercy. We're therefore to grant mercy. I looked up the word mercy in Webster's Dictionary, and this is what I found. Kind and compassionate. Uh, kind and compassionate treatment. Clemency. And just kind of this idea of justice. You know, cle- being granted clemency. I was watching on, um, on Friday morning. Uh, some of you may have been aware of this or not, but the whole uh, O.J. Simpson trial in Las Vegas. And uh, O.J. Simpson and one of uh, one of the other guys with him, I can't remember his name, but they were both addressing the court and it was sentencing time. And the jury had convicted them on on armed robbery and kidnapping charges. And (coughs) excuse me. And both O.J. Simpson and this other gentleman that was with him were both uh, given time to say a few words to the court before they were sentenced. And I just uh, I remember the, uh, the both of these gentlemen talking you know, from their, of course, you don't, I don't know these men. I don't know their hearts. All I know is what I hear coming from them is this, this sense in the spirit of remorse of what's happened. Um, and, and, I, and, and one of the gentlemen in particular, just listening to him talk, I, I was just thinking I would be a horrible judge. <laughs> I was listening to this guy talk and it, and, you know, he was sharing about, you know, he recognized that he messed up. He knows that the verdict isn't changed. Um, <clears throat> he was just hoping that the judge would, would, uh, um, would, would somehow find uh, grant him some mercy in, his, in the sentencing and what that was going to look like. And he understood, I recognize I don't deserve it. 
type of thing. And and so I'm watching this and, 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 and watching this unfold. And then, you know, the the judge was very appreciative of the words that were spoken. But then she went on to in the in the pursuit of justice to grant the appropriate uh, punishment for the crimes committed. And um, and and so there's this concept, kind of a little side story there, but there's this concept <coughs> of clemency, being merciful towards somebody who has injustice perspective deserves not mercy. They do not deserve mercy. They, they deserve judgment. And yet being able to forgive and to grant mercy in that situation. It also says here being forgiving and kind if to provide relief. You know, I know we've got some of our, our younger um, uh, students here in the room. If you're in elementary school, you know, I think back when I was in elementary school and I think, you know, boy, kids in elementary school when I was in elementary school weren't very kind. And I'm sure that's the case for you. A lot of a lot of you here in the, in the room as well. You know, you got kids at school that are bullying you, that pick on you. Um, I hope none of you are bullying or picking on other kids that are in your school. But there's this concept here that is applicable regardless of what age you are. If you're a fourth grader, a fifth grader, sixth grader, all the way up the ladder here. There's an aspect of mercy that we need to grab a hold of here. That Jesus demands us as people to grant mercy. To be kind and compassionate, forgiving towards those that... Sometimes we deem they don't deserve it because of the way they've treated us. But yet we are called to grant that mercy, regardless of what maybe our personal feelings are on the matter. Have you ever been a recipient of an act of mercy? You know, have you ever, um, do you think of a time where, where somebody granted forgiveness and compassion and kindness and is clemency idea to you? I mean, outside of the context of, of your own relationship, let's say, with Jesus. I mean, we could all... You know, those of us that, that call ourselves followers of Jesus here could all probably account to that and say that's a supreme act of mercy. But um, and don't want to minimize that, obviously, at all. That's the point of the message. But, you know, in your own day in day out interactions with other human beings, you know, other people, neighbors, people that you work with. Have you had experiences where you've been granted mercy, have been a recipient of an act of mercy? How did it affect you? What did it do to you? You know, they've got these commercials right now on TV. and I can't remember. Now, I, I think it's the point of commercials with these witty commercials for you to remember who the company is that's putting the ad on. But I can never remember. I just like the commercial. Um, but they've got these ads and there's this one out there for some, I don't know, some, I don't know if it's insurance. Maybe it's insurance or something where, <coughs> excuse me, where these different people are, um, are um, being kind and compassionate to other people and it becomes contagious. And so you see this. This this lady that does something nice for somebody and then somebody else notices that. And so then they are going to go hail a cab and then they do something nice and lend their cab over to somebody else. And there's this 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 uh, domino effect where as an act of kindness or compassion or mercy, other people notice that. And it, and it compels us in order to respond in appropriate ways in our own circumstances as well. And so a lot of times when we've received mercy, we feel this idea of generosity that we've been granted generosity and we want to somehow find a way to carry that over into the life of other people. I think that's how God's wired us. God's wired us to to uh, to model the heart of the father. We've received mercy. We have a desire to want to grant mercy to people around us. From a personal perspective, from my in my own life, uh, just this past week, I was a recipient of an act of mercy. It's kind of a small uh, small thing, but yet fi- very financially helpful. Now, the past couple months, my wife and I have had this seatbelt issue in our suburban, and I know it sounds silly, but in the middle row of our of our suburban, we've got this this lap belt that comes over, and the dumb thing just won't 
retract or go forward. It's stuck in place <clears throat> and it won't do anything. So eventually what I did was last week I called the, the, the uh, dealership and because uh, I was supposed to still have a warranty on this. And so I called them on the phone. And fortunately, I got in contact with the service manager. I, I didn't ask for the service manager. He just picked up the phone and um, I told them my situation. I told them my vehicle and all that stuff. And, and he looked at the computer and he said, oh, he said, yeah, your warranty expired last week. <laughs> And I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no, no, the vehicle originally was purchased at this date, and that was three years ago. It was like the three-year, 36,000-mile warranty thing. It was three years ago, and that was that expired last week based on the, what the date was. And I was totally bummed that I just said, I said, wow. So I, I just said, well, is there any way that there can be an exception made? <laughs> you know, it's like, really? Couldn't there be an exception made? And he says, you know what? Let me call my rep at GM, and I'll get back to you. And so he called me back later today and said, yeah, my rep said, go ahead and bring it in. As long as there's no, um, we can't tell that you've destroyed it, you know, that it's actually a factory default of some sort. Then we'll go ahead and replace it for you and cover it under the warranty anyway, even though your warranty expired. So we were very gracious. And then we came to find out that the part itself was like 180 bucks just for the, the retracting thing that they had to replace, which would have been out of our pocket plus labor. We're probably looking at, what, $350 at least probably just to get that little part fixed. And so, obviously, during the financially trying times that it is right now, you know, $350, not have to shell that out to get a seatbelt fixed is a great thing. An act of mercy, a kind, compassionate situation. A man took an extra step. He didn't have to. But he said, you know, here's an opportunity for me to, I don't know, find a way that I can help, you know, please this customer. Maybe I'll get better business from him in the past. I don't know what his motivations initially were. I'm not saying they were good or bad. I'm just, I was a recipient of mercy from him. I had a, also another story where a few years back, and I'm, I don't know if I've shared this here before or not, but a few years back, my family and I were down at, um, we went to Home Depot to get our Christmas tree. I don't know how many of you go to Home Depot, but we go to Home Depot every year for a tree. It's just, I don't know, it's easy, it's convenient, it's close. And, um, and with our kids, it's a lot harder to go up into the mountains and cut things down with our kids around. So um, they get lost in the trees and we don't know where they went. And... Um, so we went to Home Depot and my kids are, you know, when you go into Home Depot, they got these like little stalls and they have all the trees. You get noble firs and Douglas firs and all the different feet sizes. And, you know, my kids are pretty energetic. So they see a tree and it's like something to climb, you know, so they're up there running, climbing. I'm like, no, get down. You know, I don't want to break the branches and have to pay for four trees. And so um, so anyway, we're in this little mild chaos trying to get our kids from stopping to climb on the trees. And eventually we, we decide on a tree and we decided to get a little more expensive tree that year because that year we were having all of our family come to our house, which uh, which was a which was a new thing for us. We'd always gone somewhere else. But since we had four kids becoming harder, to, we just said, hey, if you want to spend Christmas with us, come to our house. And um, and so we had everybody come and we bought we were getting this tree and we said, you know, let's splurge a little bit and get a little nicer tree this year than we typically get. Just because we're going to have everybody over, it'd be nice to have a nicer tree and that sort of thing. And he said, well, it's going to cost us 15 or 20 dollars more. And we said, well, yeah, let's just go ahead and do it for this Christmas. And so um, so we went ahead and got this tree and uh, we got our parade of kids walking down and we take it over and watch them cut off the base and wrap it up. And and we take it to the cashier. And she uh, looks at us and she says, Merry Christmas. Santa Claus has bought your tree this year. And I looked at her and I said, what? And she said, yeah, Merry Christmas. Your, your tree has already been paid for. And so we left that. That was a couple, two or three Christmases ago. And, and we left Home Depot with a nice, I don't know, eight foot 
noble fir tree for now what do those things cost like 55 bucks or something i don't know we didn't cost us a penny we just walked out and to this day we don't know if there was somebody that was watching our mild chaos of kids climbing trees and they decided hey I, here's here's uh, here's my credit card whatever the tree they get just go and put it on the credit card i'll come back in a half hour and pick it up pick up the receipt or whatever or the lady that was working there just had you know had it in her heart that she wanted to be able to I don't know, comp a tree from Home Depot or if she personally wanted to pay for it. I don't, we don't know. We don't know what happened. But it was a small act of mercy that, what did it do? It, 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 it created a spirit in our own hearts of appreciation for, for an act of compassion and kindness granted to us. We didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve to be treated that way, you know. Uh, but yet somebody took the initiative to reach out. So take, let's take a look at this story in John chapter 8 and uh, spend some time looking at uh, a picture here of Jesus granting mercy. And what I'd like to do is, if I could, if, if I could have, uh, this is a little bit different maybe, but I'd like to have a couple people read this for me, just read it out. So if, if I could get somebody in the audience there that would like to read uh, the verse, uh, first six verses, verses uh, 1 through 6. Um, is there somebody out there that would just say, hey, I'll read that? Okay. And then somebody that would read verses 7 through 11. Okay. So if you could, if you could just uh, maybe stand up when you read, just go ahead and stand up and read. Oh, okay. Oh, he's got it back there behind you. Sorry about that. So go ahead and read it. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks for reading that for us. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, we just ask that you would uh, uh, speak to us as we spend some time looking at uh, an experience that you had that you're very well acquainted with. And we ask that you would uh, teach us application from this this morning. Help us to model our lives more after you and to respond in acts of mercy to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at this uh, at this passage. You keep your Bibles open. I want to walk through a couple of these these uh, these verses a little bit more closely. Um, if you look at verse one, there Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You know, this is from the preceding uh, kind of leading back from the preceding passage. And th- there's just this great picture once again. It, over and over, we see again Jesus in, a, in an act 
or, or, or a place of replenishment of his own spirit. Getting away and spending time with the Father. You know, he's presumably slept up in the Mountain of, mountain of Olives that night. And probably had his sleep, his, his sleeping mixed with the time of prayer with, with God all that evening. And just focusing in and resting with God and spending that time with Him. And so he, he starts, uh, this, this story uh, uh, finds its inception here after Jesus has come down from this mountain where he's been with his father. And it says in verse 2, at dawn, so very early here in the morning, he appears again in the temple courts. And notice it says here where all the people are gathered around him. I mean, everybody that's there at the temple at that time of the morning, it's like there's Jesus. Boom. It's like a magnet. And they're all interested now. In, in him sitting down and teaching them. So get this image in your mind. You know, a very, um, very populated area. Very early in the morning, lots of people already there. Uh, Jesus is, is interested and eager to teach. He's eager to share his thoughts on, on, on life and, and, and God's intention for people. And, and people are excited to learn and Jesus is eager to teach. And there's just tons and tons of people uh, here at this moment. Verse 3, then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. Now remember, just get the image in your mind here. This is still very early in the morning. Okay? She's been drug out of some house where she's been with some other guy. And she's brought in front of all the people here. Probably not very well clothed. You know, just, just kind of drug out and made to stand in front of this huge mob of people here in the temple courts. I mean, talk about horrific. I mean, just put yourself in this situation, how embarrassing it would be for you to have your sins put on public display for everybody to see. I mean, there's no hiding from this. To be used as a pawn by the religious leaders. You can imagine the horror that she was experiencing by, going, by, by, by having this done to her. She was not, not guilty. We'll get to that. But so were the people that were bringing her were not guilty. Their agenda was out of hate. It reminds me of, um, uh, if you remember earlier this year, there was this whole situation that came out with, um, remember Elliot Spitzer, the governor, was the governor in New York that, that had this huge scandal that came out with him. You know, and I just can't, I can't imagine, here's a, here's a guy whose whole career, because of you know, private sins in his own life that he's been engaged with, have now become put on the public sphere. And, you know, and, it, and it's easy for us to look at people in politics or in the public arena and say you're kind of getting what you deserve. But a lot of times that comes from a, a heart of hatred and spirit of hostility towards people. It's not motivated out of love. Put ourselves in a situation like that where if the thoughts that you've had this past week the actual sins that you've committed this past week, what if they were put up on a PowerPoint image in front of the, everybody here and you were asked to stand up and give, give an example, give a reason why, why were you involved in all this this week? I mean, it kind of puts it in perspective of where this woman was. I mean, just the sense of, 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 uh, of hate towards her and the sense of just vulnerability of being made, people being made aware of what had happened. Verse four, and Jesus, uh, and they said to Jesus, the teachers of the law here, made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say?" They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, 
bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is a very interesting set of verses. First of all, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they don't care about this woman at all. They have no regard for her at all. They are using her to get to Jesus. They just it lives this gives this impression of they, they they spent the evening kind of stalking the neighborhood, finding somebody that they could bring in in order to find some sort of basis to to accuse Jesus with and use someone to their own end. They're trying to trap him. Is he going to go against the law of Moses? If he does, then these religious leaders have a basis for accusing him because he could be seen as a heretic or as a false teacher. It's, it's funny, but it's also sad at the same time what the people say about this woman. The passage they're referring to, if you look at this a little more closely, the next slide here will show you Leviticus 20, verse 10. This is what the law said about the situation. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Where's the man? Where's the man in the situation? The other guilty party. He's not absolved from responsibility. This, once again, shows their hypocrisy. They really don't care about the law in this situation. They don't really care what the law of Moses says. They don't care about the woman. They care about killing Jesus. They are hell-bent on doing whatever they can, infuriated with hate, to get their goals accomplished. But it's so beautiful here. Notice that Jesus doesn't say or do anything. He knows what's happening. And instead, what does he do? He writes in the dirt. <laughs> Just We don't know what he was writing. But, but he's writing in the dirt. And, and what he's writing in the dirt is not the point. I mean, who knows what he was writing? That's not the point. But he's probably taking time calculating. Okay, how am I going to deal with this one? How am I going to work through this situation with these people. I don't think he was discouraged or he was, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. But he was probably very tactfully trying to simmer things down and, and approach this in a rational way with these people. And he's probably, this is my own opinion on this, he's probably tempering himself somewhat because he sees their hypocrisy. And if you look at places throughout the scriptures, Jesus is not typically merciful to the religious leaders of the day calls them whitewashed tombs, calls them hypocrites. I mean, he is all up in their face all of the time. And yet here, he's slowing it down. He takes some time and works through this. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, what does he do? He stoops down and he starts writing on the ground again. Unrelenting in their questioning of him, he makes a statement. And this is probably the most profound, the wisest thing that Jesus, this is a big thing to say, but one of the most wise things that Jesus has ever said. Such a powerful statement. Only Jesus could have pulled this off. Only Jesus, and we'll see this, he is the only person on the planet that could have pulled off this statement and got away with it. He doesn't retaliate against the leaders. Did you notice that? And blast them, call them hypocrites, although he could have. And probably many of us here in this room probably would have wanted to do that. Just want to fight, you know, because you could see the hardness of the heart that was there. Instead, what does he say? 
If you are without sin, go ahead and kill her. If you're without sin, go ahead and stone her. And he hit them right in their heart, didn't he? He said the only thing that he could have said to them. Because no good Jew would have done anything after that. Because every single Jewish individual in that arena understood that they were not without sin. That they were wicked, sinful human beings just like all of us. They understood that. They understood that they had no basis at that point based on his admonition to them to do anything. And then look, look at what happens. Verse 9, at this, those who began, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Who went first? The older ones went away first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Notice that the older ones leave first. They, they know, they know they've been duped here. They, they know that Jesus got them. And once again, Jesus isn't doing this out of, I mean, we know the heart of Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus isn't doing this out of like, hey, told you so, you know, with this kind of sense of superiority. But they know they've been trying to get a basis against Jesus and and he just, they can't seem to get him. They can't seem to find a way to make him say something or do something that they're going to be able to assert power over. Notice the only one after everybody has left, the older ones first and then the younger the only one left standing is Jesus, which is significant. The only perfect, sinless one in the world, the only one that had the ability to cast that stone and kill her was standing in front of her. He's the only person in that arena that had the authority based on what he just said to kill her. And what does he do? Verse 10, he straightens up and he asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He extends mercy. He has the ability to condemn her to death and to kill her right there. Instead, he chooses not to. He extends unlimited mercy towards her and then tells her what? Go and leave your life of sin. And what's interesting here is that we don't really know anything else about the woman after this story. Did she actually go and leave her life of sin? We don't know. We don't know. She was a recipient of unrelenting mercy on her behalf. How did she respond to that? We don't know for sure what happened to her. But Jesus' mercy was not conditional. He didn't dangle a carrot over her head and say, follow me first, and then I'll extend mercy to you. He extends mercy. That is the heart of the Father. Extending mercy. The Scriptures teach us that God sends the good... And the bad, the, the, the rain and the good, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here just off the top of my head, but the, the, God extends the rain on the good and the bad alike. God blesses, God is a God of blessing on those that love Him and those that hate Him. God is a God of mercy. And here, His mercy towards her was not conditional. She may well went back to her adulterous lifestyle. We don't know. We don't know for sure. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she turned and began to follow Jesus. But once again, I would say the point of this story is not so much the woman and her sin. The point is Jesus and his mercy. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. That's the decent exposure that Jesus wants to show us about the Father.
God revealed in the scripture, God revealed in the flesh. I am a God of mercy. Once again, the main point, Jesus grants us unlimited mercy and asks us to do the same. No strings attached. Jesus is modeling the father here, eager to extend mercy and to not cast judgment. This does not mean that we don't have to accept responsibility for our actions. This just means that over and above all of that, the heart of God is to extend mercy upon us, to forgive, to not give us what we deserve, to love us in spite of ourselves. So there's two different types of people in the story that I think we can draw application from as we close this morning. The first one, those that are eager to cast judgment and involved in sinful behavior. Number two, those that are not casting judgment yet involved in sinful behavior anyway. Let me explain. You see, the ones casting judgment, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, I would say are worse off than the sinful woman because they're doubly guilty here. They themselves are sinful people and they are invoking judgment hypocritical judgment upon another individual. They're eager to cast judgment on the sin of the woman, but they're blind to the fact that they are sinful to the core and judging other people besides that. The woman, the sin that she committed was still sin, as well as with the man that's not there, that should have been there, actually in keeping with the law, is guilty of sin. But we don't find her retaliating, casting judgment back. We see a difference that's going on here. Sin is sin, but we're seeing the different gravity, the implications of sin in this situation. What does Jesus do to these two groups of people? To the first group, this group of Pharisees and teachers, we would expect, like we said before, we would expect him to blast them, wouldn't we? We would expect them, him to just nail them to, to the wall with, with, with his his. His, his words of, of, uh, of, of hypocrisy and your blind guides and you're just you're destroying people. It is better off, you know, for for um, it's worse off for someone that follows these teachings. Um, <clears throat> but instead, what does he do? He gives perspective to them instead of outright condemning them as people. He allows them to really condemn themselves, understanding they can't stay there. But he gives them perspective, doesn't he? He says, if you're without sin, killer. Essentially, he says, you're not perfect, therefore you have no right to cast judgment. But he doesn't yell at them. He's gentle in a merciful way, even to them in this situation. And he gives them perspective. To the second group, which is ultimately in the situation, just the woman here, He exercises mercy and asks her to leave her sin and live for him. This response from Jesus shows us, once again, the Father's heart. It's seen elsewhere in the scriptures. We shared a couple at the beginning here, but the story of the prodigal son. I mean, beautiful picture. You see the Father's heart here. I mean, just here's a a son that, that... says, Dad, I'm done with you. Give me my, my, my part of the inheritance. I'm going to go live for myself. The Father in His mercy and His grace gives the Son what He wants. The Son leaves. 
The son lives a life of debauchery and sinful living and wastes all of his money on women and all kinds of stuff. And comes to his end, finds himself eating pig slop and living in the mud with the pigs, essentially. And basically wakes up to the fact and says, man, I could go back and work as a hired hand for my dad and be better off than I am now. He goes back and what does the scripture teach us? That the father sees him and runs to him. The father takes the fattened calf. The father extends extravagant mercy on his son. That son didn't deserve that. That son deserved to be reprimanded, sent to his room for a year. I don't know. Demanded to pay back the inheritance that he spoiled. I don't. You name it. But the father tells, essentially, tells his son, "Quiet. Don't give me your excuses." Let me celebrate that you're here. I mean, do you see the beauty of the Father's heart? A heart eager to grant mercy. A heart filled with compassion towards disobedience. To the disobedient son, not to the sin. And so this morning as we close, what what group are you in this morning? Are you like uh, the woman in story? You may not be involved in an adulterous affair. Maybe somebody here is. Are you involved in sinful behavior that needs to stop? Is there something going on in your life that Jesus is telling you, leave your life of sin? My mercy compels you to do so. Maybe you've never made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus for that purpose. Maybe your life is wrapped up in continually living for yourself and you've never taken the time to surrender your life to Jesus and ask his ask him for his sacrifice to cover your sin and for that mercy to clean you and to allow you to stand right before God. Maybe this morning is the time for you to do that. Maybe there are some that are here that would say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, but I've allowed sin to creep into my life. There's some stuff that I look at on the computer when I'm at home that I'm not supposed to. There's some ways that I'm treating friends at school that I shouldn't be treating them that way. My heart is filled with gossip or hatred towards my neighbor. I've been dishonest in business practice. I have a propensity to addiction in different ways that manifests itself in a variety of ways. I don't know what it is. But there may be some of us here that Jesus is asking you to stop, leave that area of sin in your life. Surrender it to me. I am a good and gracious and merciful God. The sin is and will destroy you. So if you're like the woman in, that, in this story, what will you do? Number two, are you like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Maybe some of you here feel like, I, I, I really feel like my walk with God is growing. And, and, and we all struggle with, with, with sinful temptation and making mistakes, but you would say that your life is not necessarily characterized at this point by some sort of sinful act, continuous sinful activity in your own life. That's going on, as maybe like you would say for the woman in this story. 
But have you and I lost perspective? Because really in our heart of hearts, we're critical and judgmental of people around us. We've built a spirit of hatred and hostility and fear towards other people. And therefore, we are on par with the Pharisees and the teachers of law in this story. Second Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Father loves. The Father is merciful. The Father demands that we show mercy to people around us. He is patient with all people. He is patient with the terrorist. He is patient with the dishonest. He wants people to know him. Do you and I recognize, if we're like the Pharisee or the teachers of the law in this story, that we are just as in much need of mercy as the woman in the story? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus grants us unlimited mercy and asks us to do the same. We who have been forgiven much should forgive much. We who have been extended mercy must extend mercy. And so... Do you need to be a recipient of God's mercy this morning? Or maybe you fit both categories. Do I need to be a better giver of mercy this morning to those that have sinned against me, to those that have caused problems in my life? The list goes on and on. You see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. Why? Because they lost control. They weren't in control. The crowds, everybody around them was in love with Jesus. Jesus captivated their attention. Jesus' teachings were new. They were real. They were fresh. They were different. They were life-giving. They were hopeful. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law could not control the wave that was being swept over their city by the Messiah that was present. And they respond out of fear and a lack of self-sufficiency anymore in their own lives. They were not able to search control because God had made himself known to them and they were rejecting him because they wanted to stay in control of their own situation, their own city, and their own lives. And so once again, it comes back to the aspect if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, we are demanded the grace of God, the mercy of God compels us to die to ourselves and our own interests and to see the world that we live in as a place to extend mercy, hope, compassion, and life. And that we allow Jesus to work in and through us to make him known to the world. It is not about you or me, about our agendas, our rights, our freedoms as Americans. It is about the mission of Jesus on this planet and how he calls us to live for him and extend his love and compassion, his hope, his forgiveness, and his mercy to people around us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. And thank you for these, these words. I, you know that I feel so inadequate to give this message. And, um, and that I harbor so much garbage in my heart. You know, it's so easy for me to get angry and frustrated and upset and to lash out verbally when my agenda has been threatened. And how easy it is for me to look at other people that don't look like me or act like me or dress like me or have a different 
political orientation or whatever and to cast judgment. And I recognize the sinfulness in my own heart when I do so. And so would you forgive me? Would you forgive us as your people? And would you help us to better represent you well to the world? Thank you for the mercy extended to us on the cross. For not giving us what we deserve. Help us to do a better job of channeling your mercy that you've given to us. To channel it to those around us in ways of love and compassion. In Jesus' name. Amen.